Uh, in the church Bibles, that's page 973, Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to uh, look together this evening at verses 9 uh, to verse uh, 17. So up on the screen I have there, if it's, it might be a bit light, so I apologize for that, but it's just a simple scale uh, between 0 uh, and 10. And if you were to put yourself on that scale uh, of how good you think you are, uh, I wonder where you would place yourself on the scale. As Christians, we know that God is at the top of the scale. He's perfect. And I'm sure most of us, if we are uh, believers here this evening, uh, would know the, the honest answer and we'd say, yeah, we're right at the bottom of the scale. But if I was to start putting photographs on the screen of other people, people perhaps throughout history, very evil people that have done very evil things, uh, perhaps people that you know that maybe aren't very good, or even people that have done extraordinarily good things. And I was to put all of those uh, pictures on the screen and had your picture, and then said, right, now put yourself on the scale. I wonder if you would still be in the same position as you would be when, you're asking, when I'm asking you to just put yourself on your own on the scale. Because we all think, really, don't we, that we are better than somebody else. If we compare ourselves to God, just us and God, we know we're not very good. But when we have other people in our minds, how easy it can be to think that we are better than they are. Just like, in fact, that Pharisee was in the parable. Naturally, it is impossible, really, to view ourselves biblically. And we often compare ourselves to others to make ourselves look good. We can always feel better when we can say, well, I'm not as bad, at least, at least I'm not as bad as, as they are. And doing this may well even make you look good to some other people. Oftentimes, isn't that what gossip's all about? We gossip, really, in order to make ourselves look good compared to the person we're gossiping about. But whenever we do that and we compare ourselves to others, We always forget our need of God ourselves. Last week, uh, we saw Jesus uh, heal a paralyzed man in Matthew chapter 9 and verses 1 to 8. He forgave this paralyzed man of his sins. Jesus had authority to forgive sins. And in fact, last time uh, we looked at three of Jesus's miracles, the calming of the storm, the demon possessed man being uh, uh, dispossessed of his demons and the forgiveness and the, the, the raising from his mat of this paralyzed man. And you could, in fact, look at these three miracles as an asc- in ascending scale of, of amazingness. That's not even a word, but you know what I mean. So at the top of the scale, the most amazing miracle Jesus actually did was the forgiveness of this man's sins. Because the forgiveness of sins is such an awesome thing that God does 
that in fact it's far greater even than calming a storm, far greater than casting out a demon. It's the greatest miracle that God can do is the forgiveness of sins. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, we see that mission statement of Jesus given in his name. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins. But in this next section of Matthew chapter 9, right after the forgiveness of the paralyzed man, the question that is answered for us is how far does Jesus' forgiveness go? How much will Jesus forgive? How, how, how bad a person Will Jesus just wipe the slate clean for? How low will he go? What about those on that scale that are real sinners? You know, the ones that are way worse than we think we are. Well, here in this passage, we see Jesus offering a call to sinners. But it's to all sinners. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, But your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. For if they do, the the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is God's word. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. But the first thing we have to realize is only sinners can be saved from sin. In verse 9, Jesus, it says, went on from there. That is, he began to move move on from Capernaum. And on the way, he sees Matthew. Now, Matthew, you may realize, is the author of this gospel where we read this account. So this is Matthew's testimony of what happens. And the first thing we need to note about Matthew is, is that he is a tax collector. He is sitting at the tax collector's booths. Now, other than a brief mention in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that we see Jesus meeting a tax collector. 
Tax collectors actually came in two different types. The first kind of tax collector was a Roman official. And a Roman official would collect taxes for income or property or a land tax. They were the taxes that would go uh, for the running of the empire. But there was another type of tax collector. And these were people who would buy off of the Roman government a franchise that they could have. And they would be, if you like, in today's culture, we have uh, customs and excise. When you come off of an airplane, you go through customs. They would tax, really, themselves, whatever they liked. And as you go from town to town, you have to go through a tax collector's booth. And someone there had bought the franchise off of the Romans, and they abused it uh, a lot. So they could tax what they liked. So the uh, goods would come through and they'd look at that and they'd say, oh, you know, I'm going to tax you however much they wanted for this particular item. They would pay the Romans for the privilege of having the booth, but anything else that they collected, they could have for themselves. So they became very rich and they were hated, hated by the people because they were fleecing people. But this particular tax collector, and there were many in this area, Matthew, was was Jewish. And because he was Jewish and he was working for the Romans, he was even more hated because he was seen as a traitor. Someone working for the occupying Roman forces in order to fleece his own people. And in fact, uh, they were so hated that many tax collectors who bought these franchises would pay someone else to sit at the tax collector's booth because they wanted to save face and not be seen to be there. But Matthew seemed to be a guy that didn't care all that much what people thought because he is sitting at the tax collector's booth. He's there. Everybody knows who Matthew is. And if you were going to put Matthew on that scale of goodness, Matthew would be right at the bottom. He is a tax collector. He was hated by everybody. And you would look at Matthew and you would usually feel quite good about yourself unless you were a fellow tax collector or a fellow sinner. And you feel good about yourself because you think, well, at least, you know, I'm not as bad as him. Which is exactly what that Pharisee was doing in Luke chapter 18. I thank God that I'm not like this tax collector. Someone like Matthew. Someone that was hated. Someone that was an extortioner. And this man, Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. This man, Jesus Christ, calls, follow me. The first shock in this passage is that Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, this tax collector. He's not the type of man religious leaders were expected to call to follow him. Matthew himself was probably shocked. Me? Jesus, you're calling me to follow you? But I'm a tax collector. But look at verse 9 again, how at the end of there, how Matthew obeyed. Matthew got up. And followed him. There's an immediate response to the call of Jesus to follow him. And this was quite a sacrifice for Matthew to make. His way of life was over. He's no longer going to be sitting at the tax collector's booth making all of this money because he's had to leave it behind to follow Jesus. He would have had to give, he would have had to give up a great deal of wealth. If this uh, following of Jesus didn't work out for him, Somebody else would have his tax collector's booth. He couldn't go back to it. 
He wouldn't be employed by anybody else because no one would have him because they knew that he was a tax collector. This was a great uh, act of faith for Matthew to get up, leave all of that behind and follow Jesus Christ. And there's no indication here, although you can't necessarily say this was definitely true, that there is any hesitancy or any regret. It seems he gets up, he leaves his old life, and he follows Jesus. And Matthew's friends also seem to know about what had happened because Matthew seems to share this good news that he's following Jesus with his friends. Because in verse 10, everyone goes to Matthew's house for this party, this dinner. Verse 10 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So Matthew shared uh, the news about Jesus He's probably told his friends, hey guys, you know, this, this man is someone that will accept us. We can follow him. He, he will accept us, even though we are tax collectors, even though we're sinners. And many, uh, many of his friends went to his house. It describes them as many, lots of people, and they're described as tax collectors and sinners. Matthew's friends would have only been society's most wretched and vile. Nobody else would be their friends because they were hated. So all of these uh, people that were at his house were ones that everybody else would put right down the bottom of the goodness scale. We don't know exactly uh, what uh, defined sinners in this, in this way, except to say it was people that were hated for all sorts of reasons uh, by the society around them. And there's uh, an important point here to note in in verse 10, that Jesus ate with them. He ate with them. When uh, when we eat with people, or in the Bible certainly, when someone is eating with them, they are identifying with them. They are friends with them. They are saying, these are are my people that I've welcomed into my life. And they're, they're being identified with by Jesus. And there's an application here for uh, evangelism isn't there really we can uh, evangelism isn't an event that we put on it's identifying with people we'd grow easily if we just put great events on and just got lots of people to come and we said well we've done our bit but Jesus here shows in his identification with sinners and eating with them that it's more than just putting something on evangelism is sharing our lives it's loving others We're not called to get people to make professions of faith. We're called to make disciples. And that's a very intimate and much more involved thing. Uh, I remember growing up, uh, I was a great problem to many people in my church. I wasn't always the best behaved, but people took time with me and they discipled me. And I always remember that. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He takes the time to be with and eat with tax collectors and sinners. The shock in this passage is not so much the time Jesus spends with people. It's not really even that he identifies with people. The great shock here is who he is identifying with. Tax collectors and sinners. And the religious Pharisees could not believe what they were seeing. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, that that Jesus was identifying with these tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, 
Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, this question in verse 11 might sound really innocent. It might sound like they're just asking Jesus a question. Why is he doing that? But really, it's very sinister. They're not curious here. They're making an accusation. They're saying to the disciples, if Jesus is your leader and he's a religious leader and he's supposed to lead you to a holy way of living, why is he taking you to such unholy places to eat with tax collectors and and sinners? You see, they expected the Messiah to destroy people like this, to get rid of tax collectors and sinners from the world and set up a kingdom of people just like them. People who look great on the outside, but really have no love for others in their hearts. You know, it's easy for us to really want to have a church of people that are just like me. Not me, me, but put your own me in there. It'd be great, wouldn't it, if everyone was just like I am. We can feel like that sometimes. Other people are uncomfortable. Other people can be annoying. I wish everyone was like me. That's exactly the kind of attitude the Pharisees have here. And we have to realize, if, you know, if that was true for me and everyone was like me, it would be a pretty bad church, I have to say. But Jesus uh, hears them speaking. They're probably speaking, by the way, to the, the disciples who are probably nearest to the door because there's no way that they're in this house. They see in and they probably are speaking to whoever's nearest, asking this question. But Jesus hears them and he answers their question with two reasons why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the first reason is in verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I don't phone up uh, the, the health center in Pelsall and tell them, I need to come and see you because I am really healthy. You need to, I, need to go, I need to get an appointment to show you just how healthy I am. I don't go to when I'm going on a visit to the hospital uh, to visit somebody else who's sick, pull up a junior doctor and say to them, why is it your superior is spending all this time with sick people? What on earth is he doing? Because they'd look at me and think, well, what kind of an idiot are you? And that's really, um, if they were asking me that, I might have responded that way, but Jesus doesn't. He asked them, the healthy need a doctor. Uh, Sorry, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You see, Jesus has shown in this chapter his authority to forgive sins. It shouldn't be a surprise that one who has come to save us from sin is spending time with people who sin, with people who need that salvation. It's reasonable, isn't it, for a saviour from sin to take time to spend with sinners who need his salvation? So the first answer to this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, is the answer from reason. The answer from reason. It is reasonable that a saviour from sin would spend time with sinners, just like a doctor spends time with sick people. But the second reason, if the first is It's reasonable. The second is scriptural. Look at verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This uh, uh, phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a verse from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 6. And in that part of Hosea, God's people are claiming that they will return to the Lord. They've been judged for idolatry. And it sounds great that they're saying, we'll return to the Lord. We'll return to the Lord. We'll do what God wants. But their repentance as they turn back looks very good on the outside. But it's just fake. It's external only. It's just ritualistic. They're they're offering sacrifices to God. They're following the legal code. But there's no internal heart change. There's no mercy. There's no love for other people. The point here is not that they should not sacrifice. They should, in Hosea's day, they should be following that sacrificial law. The point isn't that they shouldn't be doing that. The point is that the sacrifice is meaningless if it is without a changed behavior in our attitude towards others. As Christians, we can be very, very good at church attendance, at reading our Bibles every day, at singing hymns and any other form of external ritual worship. And they are all good things. In fact, all of those things, going to church, reading our Bibles, singing, they're all commanded in the Bible. But if you just do those things ritualistically for, with no heart behind them, it leaves us cold to God. And if at the same time as doing those things, we have no love for other people and we're judging them and treating them with contempt because they don't match up to our standards of religious devotion, then all of the things we're doing are just meaningless. We need a balance, don't we? We need to be doing the right thing, but we need to be applying those right things in our attitude towards others as well. But we can be like these Pharisees in other ways too. As Christians, we can be very good at talking about what homosexuals are doing, about what atheists are saying, about how bad the world is and how apathetic the church can be. And it's right to highlight areas where uh, there is wrong and injustice in society and that we show how Jesus Christ is the remedy for evil. But in pointing out these sins and pointing out the truth of them in love, we need to show mercy and show love and compassion to those even that we are seeing doing wrong. It can be easy when we're talking about the sins of others and of society to elevate ourselves up that scale and have no love for those that we're talking about that we see as lower down the scale. We can make ourselves appear virtuous, pious and models of of goodness when actually we need to love even those who are our enemies. I mean, how would you react if a, a homosexual activist came into our church? What would you do? How would you react if someone that is very anti-Christianity and you knew about it, they came in and sat in the church? How would you react? How do you react when people that you have perhaps not appreciated 
come to know Jesus Christ as their saviour, how do you feel then when they've received the blessings of salvation? If the Pharisees really loved God as they claimed to, they would be delighted that tax collectors and sinners were repenting of sin and following the Savior. And we also need to be overjoyed when someone comes to faith in Jesus. The key passage in all of this is, the key part is the end of verse 13, where Jesus says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus tells the Pharisees what his mission is. He's not saying here that the Pharisees are righteous. He is saying that he has not come for those who elevate themselves and evaluate themselves as righteous, but rather he's come to those who recognize that they are sinners. Like Israel in Hosea, the Pharisees thought that they were righteous. But the irony is this, their lack of heart religion, that it was all external, meant that they needed salvation desperately. And self-righteousness, where we think we're better than others, and we think we're, we're good with God because we see other people sinning, can eat away at us like a, like a hidden cancer that we don't know about. And sometimes it can be festering so long that we realize that we actually, we're not even Christians. Because we haven't realized that we depend on God for our own salvation. It causes a real hardness of heart when we judge others and think we're better than them. So there's three points of application here. First of all, remember who you are. We are sinners saved by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. We're not better than anybody else. We all need Jesus. Remember, secondly, who Jesus came for. He came for sinners. So be merciful to others, forgive others, and rejoice in each other's salvation. And thirdly, remember that Jesus Christ forgives any sin. Matthew and his friends were the lowest of the low. You would think that there's no way that Matthew or these sinners could ever be saved. But God's grace reaches that far. That doesn't mean to say we're supposed to feel that we're good enough for Jesus then, but rather that Jesus Christ is good enough to save even me. Maybe some of you have sinned in ways which are just, you, you think that's so bad that that could never be forgiven. That's just not true. The grace of God through Christ reaches down to the deepest sin and forgives. Well, the Pharisees had external religion that caused them not to realize that Jesus came to call sinners. But the problem goes even deeper than that for these Pharisees, because they believed that their rituals made them right with God. And Jesus goes on to teach that rituals do not make us righteous. See, the Pharisees were not the only ones who were struggling with this. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus in verse 14. 
Now, John the Baptist was uh, the, the herald of Jesus, if you remember. He was the one that announced Jesus was coming, uh, and he was coming to uh, 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 save people from sin. That was his message. He proclaimed Jesus was coming, and many people followed John. He was a great leader, very charismatic. He, was, he attracted disciples, and, but some of his disciples followed Jesus, and some of his disciples stayed with John. And in verse 14, some of John's disciples came to Jesus with a question. And it seems that they've been in collusion with the Pharisees here. It says in verse 14, John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Well, fasting is a common Jewish practice. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to fast once a year. But voluntary fasts were taken by people all through the year uh, for all sorts of reasons. But as with any uh, Old Testament regulation, the Pharisees had heaps of regulations on top that had to be kept. In the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that they uh, fasted twice a week. And we know that that was Tuesdays and Thursdays. Every week, the Pharisees would fast. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we we saw that that was for publicity purposes. The Pharisees would fast and look miserable so everyone could see uh, how miserable they were because they were fasting and how, how godly are we. But John the Baptist's disciples fasted as well. And I guess you would if your leader eats locusts and wild honey. Fasting might not be such a bad option for you. But the question here comes from pride, doesn't it? It comes from pride. They thought they were more devoted than Jesus' disciples. Because they look at Jesus' disciples, and here they are partying, even with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is, is often eating. You, you'll see that throughout the Gospels. He, he has, he's feasting all the time. And John the Baptist's disciples... Uh, are fasting. And you can imagine them trying to show their devotion to God by fasting. And there's Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, eating all the time. It's a little bit like when, when you're working really hard and you see someone else just sitting around uh, whistling or playing a game and you think, what are you doing? You know, you should be working too. And it, it seems that that's the kind of attitude that they have here in verse 14. So why is it that Jesus' disciples didn't fast? Is there anything wrong with fasting? Well, no. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to imply that he expects us to fast as Christians. He says, when you fast. But there's not much fasting going on at this particular moment in time. And so John the Baptist's disciples say, well, why not? Well, Jesus answers it in verse 15. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Well, at this time, when someone gets uh, got married, uh, the groom, uh, today we have a best man, and the groom would have people that were called uh, the children of the bride chamber. And they were, uh, their their main job, it seems, was to celebrate with the bride, with the, at the wedding, and make sure that they were having a good time so that the wedding was a really happy event. I guess, um, I don't know if that was ever a hard thing, but you, most weddings I've gone to are very happy occasions. But they, they, they were very happy, uh, and the job was to celebrate. And the wedding would last a whole week, up to a, up to a week. And the point Jesus is making here is you, you don't mourn at a wedding. If your job is to be a, cel- a celebrator at a wedding, you're not going to go to the wedding and 
and just spend time being miserable. You wouldn't be, you, it doesn't make sense. And, and we understand that to be true. You don't go to a wedding and be miserable. Well, Jesus is described often in the Old Testament and the New Testament as a bridegroom. And his coming, he is saying, is a time of celebration. It's not a time of mourning. A marriage is not a funeral. And the point here is this, that fasting is not bad, but it's a ritual that needs to be used appropriately. There is an appropriate time for God's people to fast. And he says it here, when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And that time wasn't here because there the bridegroom was. But for us, that time is now. Jesus has gone away and he is coming back. So there are times now when fasting is a proper response for our hunger for Jesus to come. That doesn't mean that we are supposed to fast all the time. A Christian life today actually is a mixture of celebration and mourning. There is a time for a Christian to mourn. We're not supposed to pretend we're happy when when things are bad. But there's also a time for celebration. We're not supposed to come to Easter Sunday and celebrate the resurrection with a scowl on our face. Christians should be the most joyful people in the world because Jesus has come. He has come to save us from our sins. But at the, time, at the same time, there is a sadness that comes because we have a longing for home in heaven that we haven't received yet. And fasting is an appropriate response to our homesickness that we have for heaven. But fasting, as with any other ritual, must be with right reasons. And Jesus makes this point with two parables in verses 16 to 17. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Just to explain these illustrations, because they might have lost uh, something of, their underst- of our understanding because they're based in their own culture there. Uh, up until recently, uh, clothes have been quite expensive. Uh, now, if you have a massive tear in your clothes, usually, at least I do, we, we throw them out, we go get a new pair of trousers. But in, the, in, in days gone by, it was expensive to buy clothes, and so you would patch them up. But you don't patch them up with a piece of cloth That hasn't also been in the wash because when it goes in the wash for the first time, the cloth would shrink. And if you put it over a tear, uh, the tear would become bigger as the cloth shrunk and tore even further. That's what Jesus is meaning there. With the wineskins, wineskins would be, uh, sorry, wine uh, would be put into skins that were uh, animal, uh, animal skins that were turned inside out. And the wine would be put in the skins, and the skins would dry out in the sun, but they were put in new skins because the wine would expand as it fermented. And as it was expanding, the skin would get bigger. But if the skin was old, it would have dried out and was cracked. And if you filled it with wine, as the wine expands, the skin, which was dried and cracked, would just explode because it hasn't any room for expansion. And you would lose all of that New wine, which would have been very, uh, very disappointing for them. So, 
Jesus is giving these two parables. But what do they mean? Well, the, the, in short, this is what they mean. Uh, King Jesus has changed the Jewish religion forever because he's fulfilled the Old Testament. King Jesus has changed the Jewish religion forever because he's fulfilled the Old Testament. The Old Testament rituals of sacrificing animals, of priests, of going to the temple, are all fulfilled now in Jesus. He is the once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need to sacrifice animals now. He is our great high priest who intercedes for us. We don't need a priest anymore. We have Jesus. He is our dwelling place the place where God is. We don't need to go to a temple because Jesus has come. But not only those things, but all the Old Testament ordinances pointed to Jesus. They all looked forward to his coming. And so they are no longer necessary to be followed in that Old Testament way because Jesus has come and has fulfilled them. We looked at this um, uh, in more detail in Matthew chapter 5 and verses Uh, 19 to 21, when we looked at um, the Sermon on the Mount. But it doesn't mean that we don't listen to what the Old Testament says. Rather, it means that the Old Testament is richer because Jesus Christ, the substance of what the Old Testament shadowed, has come. Much of the Old Testament has commands that we still need to follow. For example, the Ten Commandments. But Jesus gives even them a richer and fuller meaning which we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. In terms of fasting, well, that changes now. We no longer fast as Old Testament people did, having not experienced Christ. We fast because we have experienced Jesus and we want more of him. Jesus is saying we can't continue Old Testament lives and then add your own Pharisee rules on top of that and then add Jesus Christ too. Here's the key point. What Jesus brings with the gospel is not something to add on to your own rituals or your own good works. It's something radically different because he changes our hearts and only God can do that. You cannot have your own self-righteousness plus Christ. Fasting, praying, Reading scripture, giving money, singing, attending church are all great things. They're all good things that are right to do. But they do not make you right with God. You can't do these things and then have Jesus added on to the top. The gospel is you cannot save yourselves. And here's the link to the parable. If you try to add the gospel to your own good works, both of them are ruined. The gospel is ruined because you're denying its message of you're only saved by grace. And your works are ruined because the gospel keeps telling you those works aren't good enough. And so it's miserable. So every time you work, you realize, well, that wasn't enough. I've got to do it again. Rituals do not make you right with God. All fasting and praying and Bible reading and all our good works, they are to point to 
glorify and foster intimacy with Jesus. They don't make us right with God. Just ritual for ritual's sake doesn't make us grow in Christ. But they do discipline us by training us for godliness as we pursue Jesus. But we don't do them for salvation. We do them for growth and intimacy with Jesus Christ. The Pharisees and these disciples of John, it seems, they thought were better than others. And we can make ourselves right with God. And Jesus says, no. I've come to call sinners. And you can't do anything to save yourselves. Paul sums it up in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast.